0: The Dueling Machine by Ben Bova and Myron R. Lewis. Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. The Dueling Machine. By Ben Bova and Myron R Lewis Part one. The trouble with great ideas is that someone is sure to expend enormous effort and ingenuity figuring out how to louse them up. Dulac rode the slide to the upper pedestrian level, stepped off, and walked over to the railing. The city stretched out all around him broad avenues thronged with busy people, pedestrian walks, vehicle thoroughfares, air-cars gliding between the gleaming, towering buildings. And somewhere in this vast city was the man he must kill. The man who would kill him, perhaps. It all seemed so real, the noise of the streets, the odors of the perfumed trees lining the walks, even the warmth of the reddish sun on his back as he scanned the scene before him. It is an illusion. Dulac reminded himself. A clever man-made hallucination, a figment of my own imagination, amplified by a machine. But it seemed so very real. Real or not, he had to find Odal before the sunset. find him and kill him. Those were the terms of the duel. He fingered the stubby cylindrical statwind in his tunic pocket. That was the weapon he had chosen, his weapon, his own invention. And this was the environment he had picked. His city, busy, noisy, crowded. The metropolis Dulak had known and loved since childhood. Dulak turned and glanced at the sun. It was halfway down toward the horizon, he judged. He had about three hours to find Odal. When he did, kill or be killed. Of course no one is actually hurt. That is the beauty of the machine. It allows one to settle a score, to work out aggressive feelings, without either mental or physical harm." Dulak shrugged. He was a roundish figure, moon-faced, slightly stooped shoulders. He had work to do, unpleasant work for a civilized man. But the future of the Aquitaine Cluster and the entire alliance of neighboring star systems could well depend on the outcome of this electronically synthesized dream. He turned and walked down the elevated avenue, marveling at the sharp sensation of hardness that met each footstep on the paving. Children dashed by and rushed up to a toy-shop window. Men of commerce strode along purposefully, but without missing a chance to eye the girls sauntering by. I must have a marvelous imagination, Dulac thought, smiling to himself. Then he thought of Odal, the blond, icy professional he was pitted against. Odal was an expert at all the weapons, a man of strength and cool precision, an emotionless tool in the hands of a ruthless politician. But how expert could he be with a stat wand, when the first time he saw one was the moment before the duel began? And how well acquainted could he be with the metropolis, when he had spent most of his life in the military camps on the dreary planets of Kerak, sixty light-years from Aquitania? No, Odal would be lost and helpless in this situation. He would attempt to hide among the throngs of people. All Dulac had to do was to find him. The terms of the duel restricted both men to the pedestrian walks of the commercial quarter of the city. Dulac knew this area intimately, and he began a methodical hunt through the crowds for the tall, fair-haired, blue-eyed Odal. And he saw him. After Only a few minutes of walking down the major thoroughfare, he spotted his opponent strolling calmly along a crosswalk at a level below. Dulac hurried down the next ramp, worked his way through the crowd, and saw the man again. Tall and blond, unmistakable. Dulac edged along behind him, quietly, easily. No disturbance, no pushing. Plenty of time. They walked along the street for a quarter hour, while the distance between them slowly shrank from fifty feet to five. Finally, Dulak was directly behind him, within arm's reach. He grasped the stat wand and pulled it from his tunic. With one quick motion he touched it to the base of the man's skull and started to thumb the button that would release the killing bolt of energy. The man turned suddenly. It wasn't Odal. Dulak jerked back in surprise. It couldn't be. He had seen his face. It was Odal. And yet this man was definitely a stranger. He stared at Dulac as the duelist backed away a few steps, then turned and walked quickly from the place. A mistake, Dulac told himself. You were overanxious. A good thing this is a hallucination or else the auto-police would be taking you in by now. And yet he had been so certain that it was Odal. A chill shuddered through him. He looked up and there was his antagonist on the thoroughfare above at the precise spot where he himself had been a few minutes earlier. Their eyes met and Odal's lips parted in a cold smile. Dulac hurried up the ramp. Odal was gone by the time he reached the upper level. He could not have gotten far, Dulac reasoned. Slowly but very surely, Dulac's hallucination turned into a nightmare. He spotted Odal in the crowd only to have him melt away. He saw him again, lolling in a small park, but when he got closer the man turned out to be another stranger. He felt the chill of the duelist's ice-blue eyes on him again and again, but when he turned to find his antagonist no one was there but the impersonal crowd. Odal's face appeared again and again. Dulac struggled through the throngs to find his opponent, only to have him vanish. The crowd seemed to be filled with tall, blond men crisscrossing before Dulak's dismayed eyes. The shadows lengthened. The sun was setting. Dulak could feel his heart pounding within him and perspiration pouring from every square inch of his skin. There he is! Definitely. Positively him! Dulak pushed through the homeward-bound crowds toward the figure of a tall, blond man leaning against the safety railing of the city's main thoroughfare. It was Odal the damned, smiling, confident Odal!" Dulac pulled the wand from his tunic and battled across the surging crowd to the spot where Odal stood motionless, hands in pockets, watching him. Dulac came within arm's reach. "'Time, gentlemen. Time is up. The duel is ended!' High above the floor of the antiseptic white chamber that housed the dueling machine was a narrow gallery before the machine had been installed the chamber had been a lecture hall in aquitania's largest university now the rows of students seats the lecturers dais and rostrum were gone the chamber held only this machine the grotesque collection of consoles control desks power units association circuits and booths where the two antagonists sat in the gallery empty during ordinary duels sat a privileged handful of newsmen Time limit is up, one of them said. Dulak didn't get him. Yes, but he didn't get Dulak either. The first one shrugged. The important thing is that now Dulak has to fight Odal on his terms. Dulak couldn't win with his own choice of weapons and situations, so... Wait, they're coming out. Down on the floor below, Dulak and his opponent emerged from their enclosed booths. One of the newsmen whistled softly. Look at Dulaq's face. It's positively gray. I've never seen the Prime Minister so shaken. And take a look at Canis's hired assassin." The newsmen turned toward Odal, who stood before his booth quietly chatting with his seconds. Hmm. There's a bucket of frozen ammonia for you. He's enjoying this. One of the newsmen stood up. I've got a deadline to meet. Save my seat. He made his way past the guarded door, down the rampway circling the outer walls of the building, to the portable tri-die transmitting unit that the Aquitanian government had permitted for the newsmen on the campus grounds outside the former lecture hall. The newsman huddled with his technicians for a few minutes, then stepped before the transmitter. Emile Dulac Prime Minister of the Aquitaine Cluster and acknowledged leader of the Coalition against Chancellor Kanis of the Kerak Worlds has failed in the first part of his psychonic duel against Major Par O'Dal of Kerak. The two antagonists are now undergoing the routine medical and psychological checks before renewing their duel. By the time the newsman returned to his gallery seat, the duel was almost ready to begin. Dulac stood in the midst of a group of advisors before the looming impersonality of the machine. You need not go through with the next phase of the duel immediately, his minister of defence was saying. Wait until tomorrow, rest and calm yourself. Dulaq's round face puckered into a frown. He cocked an eye at the chief medtech hovering at the edge of the little group. The medtech, one of the staff that ran the dueling machine pointed out, the Prime Minister has passed the examinations, he is capable within the agreed-upon rules of the contest of resuming. But he has the option of retiring for the day, does he not? If Major O'Dal agrees—' Dulac shook his head impatiently. No. I shall go through with it—now. But—' The Prime Minister's face suddenly hardened. His advisors lapsed into a respectful silence. The chief medtech ushered Dulac back into his booth. On the other side of the room, Odal glanced at the Aquitanians, grinned humorlessly and strode to his own booth. Dulac sat and tried to blank out his mind while the med adjusted the neurocontacts contacts to his head and torso. They finished at last and withdrew. He was alone in the booth now, looking at the dead white walls, completely bare except for the viewscreen before his eyes. The screen finally began to glow slightly, then brightened into a series of shifting colors. The colors merged and changed, swirled across his field of view. Dulac felt himself being drawn into them gradually, compellingly, completely immersed in them. The mists slowly vanished and Dulac found himself standing on an immense and totally barren plain. Not a tree, not a blade of grass. Nothing but bare rocky ground stretching in all directions to the horizon and disturbingly harsh yellow sky. He looked down and at his feet saw the weapon that Odal had chosen. A primitive club. With a sense of dread, Dulak picked up the club and hefted it in his hand. He scanned the plain. Nothing. No hills or trees or bushes to hide in. No place to run to and off on the horizon he could see a tall lithe figure holding a similar club, walking slowly and deliberately toward him. The press gallery was practically empty. The duel had more than an hour to run, and most of the newsmen were outside broadcasting their hastily drawn guesses about Dulac's failure to win with his own choice of weapon and environment. Then a curious thing happened. On the master control panel of the dueling machine, a single light flashed red. The medtech blinked at it in surprise, then pressed a series of buttons on his board. More red lights appeared. The chief medtech rushed to the board and flipped a single switch. One of the newsmen turned to his partner. What's going on down there? I think it's all over. Yes, look, they're opening up the booths. Somebody must have scored a victory. They watched intently while the other newsmen quickly filed back into the gallery. There's Odal. He looks happy. Guess that means— Good Lord, look at Dulac! Chapter Two Dr. Leo was lecturing at the Karanay Regional University when the news of Dulac's duel reached him. An assistant professor perpetrated the unthinkable breach of interrupting the lecture to whisper the news in his ear. Leo nodded grimly, hurriedly finished his lecture, and then accompanied the assistant professor to the university president's office. They stood in silence as the slideway whisked them through the strolling students and blossoming greenery of the quietly busy campus. Leo remained wrapped in his thoughts as they entered the administration building and rode the lift-tube. Finally, as they stepped through the president's doorway, Leo asked the assistant professor, "'You say he was in a state of catatonic shock when they removed him from the machine?' "'He still is,' the president answered from his desk, "'completely withdrawn from the real world. Cannot speak, hear, or even see. A living vegetable.' Leo plopped down on the nearest chair and ran a hand across his fleshy face. He was balding and jolly, but his face was creased from a smile that was almost habitual, and his eyes were active and alert. I don't understand it, he admitted. Nothing like this has ever happened in the dueling machine before. The university president shrugged. I don't understand it either, but this is your business. He put a slight emphasis on the last word, unconsciously, perhaps. Well at least this will not reflect on the university. That is why I formed Psychotronics as a separate business enterprise." Then he added with a grin, "...the, the money was, of course, only a secondary consideration." The President managed a smile. "...Of course." "...I suppose the Aquitanians want to see me?" Leo asked academically. "...They're on the tri now, waiting for you." They're holding a transmission frequency open over eight hundred parsecs?" Leo looked impressed. "'I must be an important man.' "'You're the inventor of the dueling machine and the head of Psychotronics, Inc. You're the only man who can tell them what went wrong.' "'Well, I suppose I shouldn't keep them waiting.' "'You can take the call here,' the president said, starting to get from his chair. "'No, no. Stay there at your desk,' Leo insisted. There's no reason for you to leave, or you either," he said to the assistant professor. The president touched a button on his desk communicator. The far wall of the office glowed momentarily, then seemed to dissolve. They were looking into another office, this one on Aquitania. It was crowded with nervous-looking men in business clothes and military uniforms. "'Gentlemen,' Dr. Leo said. Several of the Aquitanians tried to answer him at once. After a few seconds of talking together, they all looked toward one of their members, a tall, purposeful, shrewd-faced civilian who bore a neatly trimmed black beard. I am Fernand Massan, the acting Prime Minister of Aquitania. You realize, of course, the crisis that has been precipitated in my government because of this duel. Leo blinked. I realize that apparently there has been some difficulty with the dueling machine installed on the governing planet of your star cluster. Political crises are not my field. But your dueling machine has incapacitated the Prime Minister, one of the generals bellowed. And at this particular moment, the Defense Minister added, in the midst of our difficulties with the Kerak worlds. If the Prime Minister is not— Gentlemen, Leo objected. I cannot make sense of your story if you all speak at once. Massan gestured them to silence. The dueling machine, Leo said, adopting a slightly professorial tone, is nothing more than a psychonic device for alleviating human aggressions and hostilities. It allows for two men to share a dream world created by one of them. There is a nearly complete feedback between the two. Within certain limits, two men can do anything they wish within their dream-world. This allows men to settle grievances with violence in the safety of their own imaginations. If the machine is operated properly, no physical or mental harm can be done to the participants. They can alleviate their tensions safely, without damage of any sort to anyone and without hurting society. Your own government tested one of the machines and approved its use on Aquitania more than three years ago. I see several of you who were among those to whom I personally demonstrated the device. Dueling machines are in use through wide portions of the galaxy, and I am certain that many of you have used the machine. You have, General, I'm sure." The General blustered. "'That has nothing to do with the matter at hand!' "'Admittedly,' Leo conceded, "'but I do not understand how a therapeutic machine can possibly become entangled in a political crisis.' Massan said. Allow me to explain. Our government has been conducting extremely delicate negotiations with the stellar governments of our neighboring territories. These negotiations concern the rearmament of the Karak worlds. You have heard of Canis of Karak? I recall the name vaguely, Leo said. He's a political leader of some sort. Of the worst sort? He has acquired complete dictatorship of the Karak worlds, and is now attempting to rearm them for war. This is in direct countervention of the Treaty of Aquitania, signed only thirty Terran years ago. I see. The treaty was signed at the end of the Aquitaine-Karak war, wasn't it? A war that we won, the General pointed out. And now the Karak worlds want to rearm and try again? Leo said. Precisely. Leo shrugged. "'Why not call in the Star Watch? This is their type of police activity, and what has all this to do with the dueling machine?' Massan explained patiently. "'The Aquitaine Cluster has never become a full-fledged member of the Terran Commonwealth. Our neighboring territories are likewise unaffiliated. Therefore the Star Watch can intervene only if all parties concerned agree to intervention.' Unless, of course, there is an actual military emergency. The Kerak worlds, of course, are completely isolationist, unbound by any laws except those of force." Leo shook his head. As for the dueling machine, Massan went on, Canis of Kerak has turned it into a political weapon. But that's impossible. Your government passed strict laws concerning the use of the machine. I recommended them and I was in your council chambers when the laws were passed the machine may be used only for personal grievance. It is strictly outside the realm of politics." Massan shook his head sadly. Sir, laws are one thing. People are another. And politics consists of people, not words on paper. I don't understand, Leo said. Massan explained. A little more than one Terran year ago, Canis picked a quarrel with a neighboring star group the Safad Federation. He wanted an especially favorable trade arrangement with them. Their Minister of Trade objected most strenuously. One of Karak's negotiators, a certain Major Odal, got into a personal argument with the Minister. Before anyone knew what had happened, they had challenged each other to a duel. Odal won the duel, and the Minister resigned his post. He said that he could no longer effectively fight against the will of Odal and his group. He was psychologically incapable of it. Two weeks later, he was dead. Apparently a suicide, although I have doubts." "'That's extremely interesting,' Leo said. Three days ago,' Massan continued, the same Major Odal engaged Prime Minister Dulak in a bitter personal argument. Odal is now a military attaché of the Karak Embassy here. He accused the Prime Minister of cowardice before a large group of an embassy party. The Prime Minister had no alternative but to challenge him. And now— And now, Dulac is in a state of shock and your government is tottering. Massan's back stiffened. Our government shall not fail, nor shall the Aquitaine Cluster acquiesce to the rearmament of the Kerak worlds. But— His voice lowered. Without Dulac— I fear that our neighboring governments will give in to Kanus's demands and allow him to rearm. Alone, we are powerless to stop him. Rearmament itself might not be so bad, Leo mused. If you can keep the Kerak worlds from using their weapons, perhaps the Star Watch might. Kanus could strike a blow and conquer a star system before the Star Watch could be summoned and arrive to stop him. Once Kerak is armed, this entire area of the galaxy is in peril. In fact, the entire galaxy is endangered. And he's using the dueling machine to further his ambitions? Leo said. Well, gentlemen, it seems I have no alternative but to travel to the Aquitaine Cluster. The dueling machine is my responsibility, and if there is something wrong with it, or the use of it, I will do my best to correct the situation. That is all we ask, Massan said. Thank you. The Aquitanian scene faded away, and the three men in the University President's office found themselves looking at a solid wall once again. Well, Dr. Leo said, turning to the President, it seems that I must request an indefinite leave of absence. The President frowned. And it seems that I must grant your request, even though the year is only half finished. I regret the necessity. Leo said. Then, with a broad grin, he added, My assistant professor here can handle my courses for the remainder of the year very easily. Perhaps he will even be able to deliver his lectures without being interrupted. The assistant professor turned red. Now, then, Leo muttered, mostly to himself, Who is this Canis, and why is he trying to turn the Kerak worlds into an arsenal? Chapter 3 Chancellor Canis, the supreme leader of the Kerak world, stood at the edge of the balcony and looked across the wild, tumbling gorge to the rugged mountains beyond. "'These are the forces that mold men's actions,' he said to his small audience of officials and advisers: "'The howling winds, the mighty mountains, the open sky, and the dark powers of the clouds.' The men nodded and made murmurs of agreement. Just as the mountains thrust up from the pettiness of the lands below, so shall we rise above the common walk of men," Canis said. "'Just as a thunderstorm terrifies them, we will make them bend to our will.'" "'We will destroy the past,' said one of the ministers. "'And avenge the memory of defeat,' Canis added." He turned and looked at the little group of men. Canis was the smallest man on the balcony. short spare, sallow-faced, but he possessed piercing dark eyes and a strong voice that commanded attention. He walked through the knot of men and stopped before a tall, lean, blond youth in light-blue military uniform. "'And you, Major Odal, will be a primary instrument in the first steps of conquest.' Odal bowed stiffly. "'I only hope to serve my leader and my worlds.' "'You shall, and you already have.' Canis said, beaming, Already the Aquitanians are thrashing about like a snake whose head has been cut off. Without Dulac they have no head, no brain, to direct them. For your part in this triumph—Canis snapped his fingers, and one of his advisors quickly stepped to his side and handed him a small ebony box—I present you with this token of the esteem of the Kerak worlds, and of my personal high regard. He handed the box to Odal, who opened it and took out a small jeweled pin. The Star of Karak, Kanis announced. This is the first time it has been awarded to anyone except a warrior on the battlefield. But then we have turned their so-called civilized machine into our own battlefield, eh? Odal grinned. Yes, sir, we have. Thank you very much, sir. This is the supreme moment of my life. To date, Major. Only to date. There will be other moments, even higher ones. Come, let's go inside. We have many plans to discuss. More duels, more triumphs." They all filed into Canis' huge elaborate office. The leader walked across the plushly ornate room and sat at the elevated desk while his followers arranged themselves in the chairs and couches placed about the floor. Odal remained standing near the doorway. Canis let his fingers flick across a small control board set into his desktop and a tri-dimensional star map glowed into existence on the far wall. At its center were the eleven stars that harbored the Kerak worlds. Around them stood neighboring stars, color-coded to show their political groupings. Off to one side of the map was the Aquitaine Cluster, a rich mass of stars, wealthy, powerful, the most important political and economic power in this section of the galaxy until yesterday's duel. Canis began one of his inevitable harangues. Objectives, political and military. Already the Kerak worlds were unified under his dominant will. The people would follow wherever he led. Already the political alliances built up by the Aquitanian diplomacy since the last war were tottering. Now that Dulac was out of the picture, now was the time to strike. A political blow here at the Czarno Confederacy to bring them and their armaments industries into line with Kerak. Then more political strikes to isolate the Aquitaine Cluster from its allies and to build up the subservient states for Kerak. Then, finally, the military blow against the Aquitanians. A sudden strike, a quick, decisive series of blows, and the Aquitanians will collapse like a house of paper. Before the Starwatch can interfere, we will be masters of the Cluster. Then, with the resources of Aquitania to draw on, we can challenge any force in the galaxy, even the Terran commonwealth itself." The men in the room nodded their assent. They've heard this story many, many times, Odal thought to himself. This was the first time he had been privileged to listen to it. If you closed your eyes, or looked only at the star map, the plan sounded bizarre, extreme, even impossible. But if you watched Canis, and let those piercing, almost hypnotic eyes fasten on yours, then the leader's wildest dreams sounded not only exciting, but inevitable." Odal leaned a shoulder against the paneled wall and scanned the other men in the room. There was Fat Greber, the vice-chancellor, fighting desperately to stay awake after drinking too much wine during the luncheon and afterward. And Modal, sitting on the couch next to him, was bright-eyed and alert thinking only of how much money and power would come to him as chief of industries once the rearmament program began in earnest. Sitting alone on another couch was Kor, the quiet one, the head of intelligence and technically Odal's superior, silent Kor, whose few words were usually charged with terror for those whom he spoke against. Marshal Lugal looked bored when Canis spoke of politics, but his face changed when military matters came up. The Marshal lived for only one purpose—to avenge his army's humiliating defeat in the war against the Aquitanians thirty Terran years ago. What he didn't realize, Odal thought, smiling to himself, was that as soon as he had reorganized the army and re-equipped it, Canis planned to retire him and place younger men in charge. Men whose only loyalty was not to the army, not even to the Kerak worlds and their people, but to the Chancellor himself. Eagerly following every syllable, every gesture of the leader was little Tinth. Born to the nobility, trained in the arts, a student of philosophy, Tinth had deserted his heritage and joined the forces of Canis. His reward had been the Ministry of Education. Many teachers had suffered under him. And finally there was ramis the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs a professional diplomat and one of the few men in government before Canis' sweep to power to survive this long. It was clear that Ramis hated the Chancellor, but he served the Kerak worlds well. The diplomatic corps was flawless in their handling of intergovernmental affairs. It was only a matter of time, Odal knew, before one of them, ramis or Canis, killed the other. The rest of Canis' audience consisted of political hacks, roughnecks turned bodyguards, and a few other hangers-on who had been with Canis since the days when he held his political monologues in cellars and haunted the alleys to avoid the police. Canis had come a long way from the blackness of oblivion to the dazzling heights of the Chancellor's rural estate. Money, power, glory, revenge, patriotism, Each man in the room listening to Canis had his reasons for following the Chancellor. And my reasons? Odal asked himself. Why do I follow him? Can I see into my own mind as easily as I see into theirs? There was duty, of course. Odal was a soldier, and Canis was the duly elected leader of the government. Once elected, though, he had dissolved the government and solidified his powers as absolute dictator of the Karak worlds. There was gain to be had by performing well under Canis, regardless of his political ambitions and personal tyrannies. Canis rewarded well when he was pleased. The medal, the Star of Kerak, carried with it an annual pension that would nicely accommodate a family. If I had one, Odal thought sardonically. There was power of sorts also working the dueling machine in his special way, hammering a man into nothingness, finding the weaknesses in his personality and exploiting them, pitting his mind against others, turning sneering towers of pride like Dulac into helpless whipped dogs. That was power. And it was a power that did not go unnoticed in the cities of the Kerak worlds. Already Odal was easily recognized on the streets. Women especially seemed to be attracted to him now. The most important factor, Canis was saying, and I cannot stress it over much, is to build up an aura of invincibility. This is why your work is so important, Major Odal. You must be invincible. Because today you represent the collective will of the Kerak worlds. Today you are the instrument of my own will, and you must triumph at every turn. The fate of your people, of your government, of your Chancellor rests squarely on your shoulders each time you step into a dueling machine. You have borne that responsibility well, Major. Can you carry it even further? I can, sir, Odal answered crisply. And I will. Canis beamed at him. Good, because your next duel, and those that follow it, will be to the death. Chapter Four took the starship two weeks to make the journey from Carinay to the Aquitaine Cluster. Dr. Leo spent the time checking over the Aquitanian dueling machine by direct tri beam. The Aquitanian government gave him all the technicians time and money he needed for the task. Leo spent as much of his spare time as possible with the other passengers of the ship. He was gregarious, a fine conversationalist, and had a nicely balanced sense of humor. Particularly, he was a favorite of the younger women, since he had reached the age where he could flatter them with his attention without making them feel endangered. But still, there were long hours when he was alone in his stateroom with nothing but his memories. At times like these, it was impossible not to think back over the road he had been following. Albert Robertus Leo, Ph.D., Professor of Physics, Professor of Electronics, Master of Computer Technology inventor of the interstellar tri-di communication system, and, more recently, student of psychology, professor of psychophysiology, founder of Psychonics, Inc., inventor of the dueling machine. During his earlier years, when the supreme confidence of youth was still with him, Leo had envisioned himself as helping mankind to spread his colonies and civilizations throughout the galaxy the bitter years of galactic war had ended in his childhood and now human societies throughout the milky way were linked together in greater or lesser degree of union into a more or less peaceful coalition of star groups there were two great motivating forces at work on those human societies spread across the stars and these forces worked toward opposite goals On the one hand was the urge to explore, to reach new stars, new planets, to expand the frontiers of man's civilizations and found new colonies, new nations. Pitted against this drive to expand was an equally powerful force. The realization that technology had finally put an end to physical labor and almost to poverty itself on all the civilized worlds of man. The urge to move off to the frontier was penned in and buried alive under the enervating comforts of civilization. The result was inescapable. The civilized worlds became constantly more crowded as time wore on. They became jam-packed islands of humanity, sprinkled thinly across the sea of space that was still full of unpopulated islands. The expense and difficulty of interstellar travel was often cited as an excuse. The starships were expensive. Their power demands were frightful. Only the most determined and the best financed groups of colonists could afford them. The rest of mankind accepted the ease and safety of civilization, lived in the bulging cities of the teeming planets. Their lives were circumscribed by their neighbors and by their governments. Constantly more people crowding into a fixed living space meant constantly less freedom. The freedom to dream, to run free, to procreate, all became state-owned, state-controlled monopolies. And Leo had contributed to this situation. He had contributed his thoughts and his work. He had contributed often and regularly. The interstellar communications system was only one outstanding achievement in a long career of achievements. Leo had been nearly at the voluntary retirement age for scientists when he realized what he and his fellow scientists had done. Their efforts to make life richer and more rewarding for mankind had made life only less strenuous and more rigid. And with every increase in comfort Leo discovered came a corresponding increase in neuroses, in crimes of violence, in mental aberrations senseless wars of pride broke out between star groups for the first time in generations outwardly the peace of the galaxy was assured but beneath the glossy surface of the terran commonwealth there smoldered the beginnings of a volcano police actions fought by the star watch were increasing ominously petty wars between once stable peoples were flaring up steadily Once Leo realized the part he had played in this increasingly tragic drama, he was confronted with two emotions. A deep sense of guilt, both personal and professional, and, countering this, a determination to do something, anything, to restore at least some balance to man's collective mentality. Leo stepped out of physics and electronics and entered the field of psychology. Instead of retiring, he applied for a beginner's status in his new position. It had taken considerable bending and straining of the commonwealth's rules, but for a man of Leo's stature, the rules could be flexed somewhat. Leo became a student once again, then a researcher, and finally a professor of psychophysiology. Out of this came the dueling machine, a combination of electroencephalograph and autocomputer, a, a dream machine that amplified a man's imagination until he could engulf himself into a world of his own making. Leo envisioned it as a device to enable men to rid themselves of hostility and tension safely. Through his efforts and those of his colleagues, dueling machines were quickly becoming accepted devices for settling disputes. When two men had a severe difference of opinion, deep enough to warrant legal action, they could go to the dueling machine instead of the courts. Instead of sitting helplessly and watching the machinations of the law grind impersonally through their differences, the two antagonists could allow their imaginations free rein in the dueling machine. They could settle their differences personally, as violently as they wished, without hurting themselves or anyone else. On most civilized worlds, the results of properly monitored duels were accepted as legally binding. The tensions of civilized life could be escaped, albeit temporarily in the dueling machine. This was a powerful tool, much too powerful to allow it to be used indiscriminately. Therefore, Leo safeguarded his invention by forming a private company, Psychonics, Inc., and securing an exclusive license from the Terran commonwealth to manufacture, sell, install, and maintain the machines. His customers were government health and legal agencies. His responsibilities were legally to the commonwealth. Morally to all mankind, and finally to his own restless conscience, the dueling machines succeeded. They worked as well, and often better than Leo had anticipated. But he knew that they were only a stopgap, only a temporarily shoring of a constantly eroding dam. What was needed, really needed, was some method of exploding the status quo some means of convincing people to reach out for those unoccupied, unexplored stars that filled the galaxy, some way of convincing men that they should leave the comforts of civilization for the excitement of colonization. Leo had been searching for that method when the news of Dulac's duel against Odal reached him. Now he was speeding across parsecs of space, praying to himself that the dueling machine had not failed. The two-week flight ended. The starship took up a parking orbit around the capital planet of Aquitaine Cluster. The passengers transshipped to the surface. Dr. Leo was met at the landing disk by an official delegation, headed by Massan, the acting Prime Minister. They exchanged formal greetings there at the base of the ship while the other passengers hurried by. As Leo and Massan, surrounded by the other members of the delegation, rode the slideway to the port's administration building, Leo commented, As you probably know, I have checked through your dueling machine quite thoroughly via tri for the past two weeks. I-, I can find nothing wrong with it. Massan shrugged. Perhaps you should have checked, then, the machine on Zarno. The Zarno Confederation? Their dueling machine? Yes. This morning Canis' hired assassin killed a man in it. He won another duel? Leo said. You do not understand, Massan said grimly. Major Odal's opponent, an industrialist who had spoken out against Canis, was actually killed in the dueling machine. The man is dead. Chapter 5 one of the advantages of being Commander-in-Chief of the Star Watch, the old man thought to himself, is that you can visit any planet in the Commonwealth." He stood at the top of the hill and looked out over the green-table land of Kenya. This was the land of his birth. Earth was his homeworld. The Star Watch's official headquarters may be in the heart of a globular cluster of stars near the center of the galaxy, but Earth was the place the Commander wanted to see most as he grew older and wearier. An aide, who had been following the commander at a respectful distance, suddenly intruded himself into the old man's reverie. "'Sir, a message for you.' The commander scowled at the young officer. "'I gave orders that I was not to be disturbed.' The officer, slim and stiff, in his black and silver uniform, replied, "'Your chief of staff has passed the message on to you, sir. It's from Dr. Leo, of Carne University. Personal and urgent, sir.' The old man grumbled to himself, but nodded. The aide placed a small crystalline sphere on the grass before him. The air above the sphere started to vibrate and glow. "'Sir Harold Spencer here,' the commander said. The bubbling air seemed to draw in on itself and take solid form. Dr. Leo sat at a desk chair and looked up at the standing commander. "'Harold, it's a pleasure to see you once again.' Spencer's stern eyes softened, and his beefy face broke into a well-creased smile. Albert, you ancient scoundrel, what do you mean by interrupting my first visit home in fifteen years? It won't be a long interruption, Leo said. You told my chief of staff that it was urgent, Sir Harold groused. It is, but it's not the sort of problem that requires much action on your part. Yet you are familiar with recent political developments on the Kerak worlds. Spencer snorted. I know that a barbarian named Canis has established himself as a dictator. He's a troublemaker. I've been talking to the Commonwealth Council about the advisability of quashing him before he causes grief, but you know the Council. First wait until the flames have sprung up, then thrash about and demand that the Star Watch do something. Leo grinned. You're as irascible as ever. My personality is not the subject of this rather expensive discussion. What about Canis, and what are you doing getting yourself involved in politics? About to change your profession again?" No, not at all, Leo answered, laughing. Then, more seriously, it seems as though Canis has discovered some method of using the dueling machines to achieve political advantages over his neighbors. What? Leo explained the circumstances of Odal's duels with the Aquitanian Prime Minister and the Zarno Industrialist. Dulac is completely incapacitated and the other poor fellow is dead?" Spencer's face darkened into a thundercloud. You were right to call me. This is a situation that could easily become intolerable. I agree, Leo said. But evidently Canis has not broken any laws or interstellar agreements. All that meets the eye is a disturbing pair of accidents, both of them accruing to Canis's benefit. Do you believe they were accidents? Certainly not. The dueling machine cannot cause physical or mental harm. Unless someone has tampered with it in some way." That is my thought, too. Spencer was silent for a moment, weighing the matter in his mind. Very well. The Star Watch cannot act officially, but there is nothing to prevent me from dispatching an officer to the Aquitaine Cluster on detached duty to serve as a liaison between us. Good. I think that will be the most effective method of handling the situation at present. It will be done," Sir Harold pronounced. His aide made a mental note of it. Thank you very much, Leo said. Now go back to enjoying your vacation. Vacation? This is no vacation, Spencer rumbled. I happen to be celebrating my birthday. So? Well, congratulations. I try not to remember mine, Leo said. Then you must be older than I, Spencer replied, allowing only the faintest hint of a smile to appear. I suppose it's possible. But not very likely, eh? They laughed together and said goodbye. bye The Starwatch commander tramped through the hills until sunset, enjoying the sight of the grasslands and distant purple mountains he had known in his childhood. As dusk closed in, he told his aide he was ready to leave. The aide pressed a stud on his belt, and a two-place aircar skimmed silently from the far side of the hills and hovered beside them. Spencer climbed in laboriously, while the aide remained discreetly at his side. While the commander settled his bulk into his seat, the aide hurried around the car and hopped into his place. The car glided off toward Spencer's personal planet ship, waiting for him at a nearby field. Don't forget to assign an officer to Dr. Leo the commander muttered to his aide. Then he turned and watched the unmatchable beauty of an earthly sunset. The aide did not forget the assignment. That night, as Sir Harold's ship spiraled out to a rendezvous with a starship, the aide dictated the necessary order into an auto-dispatcher that immediately beamed it to the Starwatch's nearest communication center on Mars. The order was scanned and routed automatically, and finally beamed to the Starwatch Unit Commandant in charge of the area closest to the Aquitaine Cluster, on the sixth planet circling the star Perseus Alpha. Here again, the order was processed automatically and routed through the local headquarters to the personnel files. The automated files selected three microcard dossiers that matched the requirements of the order. The three microcards and the order itself appeared simultaneously on the desktop viewer of the Starwatch personnel officer. He looked at the order, then read the dossiers. He flicked a button that gave him an updated status report on each of the three men in question. One was due for leave after an extensive period of duty. The second was the son of a personal friend of the local commandant. The third had just arrived a few weeks ago, fresh from the Starwatch Academy on Mars. The personnel officer selected the third man, routed his dossier and Sir Harold's order back into the automatic processing system, and returned to the film of primitive dancing girls he had been watching before this matter of decision had arrived at his desk. End of Part One of The Dueling Machine by Ben Bova and Myron R. Lewis